If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From the Justinianic plague to the fall of the Maya, climate change has been connected to many of history's great catastrophes. Rhiannon Davis spoke to the environmental journalist Eugene Linden to learn more about the longer history of our relationship with the environment and how the situation has snowballed since 1979. So Eugene, the past 11,700 years is known as the Holocene Age. Why has humanity flourished in this period from an environmental perspective? Well, it's as good as it gets in terms of growing crops. uh, Well, first inventing agriculture and then growing crops. It's one of the most stable periods in the last, you know, several hundred thousand years. And when you, at the beginning of the period, uh, the global population would be counted in the single digit millions. And then um, agriculture uh, began in the, uh, in the Middle East, in the Fertile Crescent. And uh, there were a couple of disruptions, uh, like 8,200 years ago, there was a it's called the 82, imaginatively called the 8,200 year ago event. There was a sudden cooling and it lasted a few hundred years and it actually uh, slowed the uh, 
the progress of civilization for uh, quite a bit of time. But then since then, uh, human numbers have expanded extraordinarily. And so it's really uh, the alignment of the stars literally uh, had something to do with it. We're in what Richard Alley, a uh, uh, climate scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, described as the sweet spot in terms of orbital dynamics. So we have a climate in which uh, many of our staple crops were able to flourish and it remained relatively stable and one with slight hip- hiccups subsequently. Now, for instance, the Little Ice Age, which uh, many have heard about, started in uh, about, uh, depending between uh, different parts of Europe, uh, 1100, 1300 A.D., um, and uh, lasted uh, until the early 19th century. And some people don't even think it's a single event, but several events. But in any case, the weather turned cooler, uh, had all sorts of effects. Uh, we had the Black Death during that. And population basically stagnated uh, for several hundred years in Europe. And so climate and uh, is inextricably linked to uh, human numbers. But even during this sweet spot of uh, orbital dynamics for, for humans, we've had several events which have uh, caused the collapse of civilizations. Uh, 5,200 years ago, uh, the Akkadian uh, civilization uh, collapsed in uh, the uh, Fertile Crescent because of a, a drought that lasted, uh, according to various studies, by 150 to 300 years. And one of the reasons that this is somewhat new, the study of how climate has played a role in human civilization, is it's only recently that, um, and literally the last 40 years or so, that we've had proxies that are precise enough to reconstruct past climates with the accuracy needed to relate them to historical events. So um, even though climate has turned out to be a serial killer of civilizations down through the years, even as human numbers have expanded, it's only recently we've been able to make the association between uh, the, the weather and the collapse of a civilization. I would say, I think one of the more dramatic examples um, was the uh, collapse of the Mayans. And there are about a hundred theories of what, why the Mayans collapsed. And, uh, Jared Diamond had one theory, others. But the role of climate only started to become uh, apparent in the late 90s. First, uh, some very clever analysis of seabed, uh, lake bed sediments showed that, um, for instance, that when uh, during times of drought, gypsum will collect at the center of a, of a pond. When the pond is full, gypsum will collect at the edges of the pond and uh, you know, scientists uh, discovered that uh, there's the, around 900 AD or so, there started to be a, a series of s- severe droughts that lasted uh, over 150 years. This was confirmed by other sediments, uh, more precise uh, proxies uh, flowing out of rivers in, in South America. And then uh, some anthropologists have put this together with uh, some other things to say that maybe drought was the one that brought down the Mayans. And, of course, the Anasazi in the American Southwest disappeared at the same time, and there were events in North Africa and China that confirmed that this was a global phenomenon. So it, it's really a, a climate is a newcomer in terms of understanding the rise and fall of civilizations. And you mentioned the Black Death. How did climate change relate to that event? Well, uh, a British historian, H.H. Um, H. Lamb, who actually is a pioneer in uh, 
creating the field of uh, climate history and uh, climate impact on human history, first posited this um, because uh, in 1332, there was a tremendous amount of flooding in, in China. It supposedly killed about 7 million people, and that was followed by drought. Now, what happens when you have rapid climate change, you know, rapid fluctuations in climate, is that the pest species tend to proliferate because they're, they're called our strategists. They're, their strategy is to produce a lot in times of uh, when, when times are good, and then they collapse when, they, uh, when times are bad. And so there was an explosion of rodents in China. And then, of course, this was followed by drought. And that um, what happens when uh, the population hosting a microbe falls is that uh, the microbe tries to find a new host. And uh, they jumped uh, to marmots, apparently, among other species, and then to humans. Uh, they'd kill the marmots. The, the pelts were used by humans that jumped to humans, and they killed something like 35 million people in China with the Black Death. So how did they get west um well apparently there were a lot of dead marmots along the various trade routes and um trappers would pick up the marmots and harvest the pelts and then sell them to dealers who would bring them along the trade routes to the west and uh, the mar- now the marmots were not a host for the black death because the black death was killing them but of course from the marmots the fleas that caused the black death would then jump to rats um, and then it showed up in uh, Kaffa uh, in Crimea, a port. The rats uh, would bring it ashore, and of course it spread through Europe. So the climate connection was as a transmission. There's another example that actually relates to uh, England as well, and that was in uh, quite earlier from in 536 AD, <clears throat> the Justinian Plague. And um, historians think that may have originated in Africa, there was a 536 AD was an incredible year because it, the sun dimmed and it's written up in accounts at the time um, that the moon wasn't as bright, the sun wasn't as bright. Nobody knows why because there were no volcanic uh, eruptions. But what there was, there may have been um, like a, a, a large uh, meteor hit or a, uh, an asteroid hit. Uh, because some calderas were found that were contemporaneous. But in any case, it caused cooling in Europe and drought in Africa. And in this case, what happened during the drought uh, was that gerbils, which were the host of the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the plague, both expanded beforehand and then collapsed, and it jumped to black rats and then made its way through the trade routes up into uh, Egypt and eventually to Great Britain. And uh, every year we, we get new connections being established. You know, mud, um, an unusual muddy season helped the Russians to defeat the Germans in World War II. When General Paulus failed to capture Stalingrad, and it was stalled. The rescue attempts were, were, were stalled because of the weather as well and mud. And um, even today, right now, what we see happening in uh, Ukraine is that... Um, that great convoy was confined to the roads because uh, an early thaw, uh, you know, uh, left the fields muddy and uh, a tank needs something like a foot of frozen ground in order to maneuver off a road. So what, you know, what we see are these connections between weather and historical events where weather has often been taken for granted or, or when weather is unexpected, it throws a curveball into the plans of the generals and other people. 
Mm. Well, let's continue looking then at more modern history because your new book, Fire and Flood, focuses on 1979 to the present day. Why did you choose to study that period? Well, I date the climate change era from 1988 when it became a mainstream issue. But before that, um, in the late 70s, um, it reached the level of presidential attention. President Carter in the United States uh, convened uh, some uh, blue chip scientific panels to study the phenomenon. And uh, it it got to the level of the science advisor, got to the level of President Carter. And there was beginnings of calls for action because a couple of these reports suggested that if we don't do anything to control the uh, release of greenhouse gases, that we would see changes in climate by uh, the year 2000, uh, which was an extraordinary claim to make back then, given the, uh, that many of the climate models were, were quite primitive. And also the proxies that actually showed that climate could change rapidly were not really available, were not available then. And, and, and even worse than that, um, the conventional wisdom was that uh, climate takes hundreds of years to change back in the 70s. So it was a rather extraordinary position that turned out to be uh, actually too conservative because changes in climate began showing up in the 80s. Um, several of the hottest dec- uh, years in uh, recorded modern history, which is when uh, you can date uh, temperatures back 150 years or so uh, with, with any accuracy, were uh, in the 80s. But uh, they were, at that point, people didn't believe that, you know, that it, it might have been just normal random variation and not attributable to human impacts. And so... I, I dated from then because that's when it, uh, 79, because that's when the issue was at least got presidential attention. I date the modern climate change era from 1988 because that's when there were all these record heat waves around the world. It got, uh, the U.S. Senate had a, 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 a meeting on it, in which James Hansen got up and said it was 99% certain. He was 99% certain that humans were, um, uh, the cause of uh, this this pronounced warming we were beginning to see. The 80s were a kind of a lost decade in terms of climate change and any uh, attempts to deal with it because uh, Ronald Reagan became president. We were the largest economy in the world, and um, they had no interest in the issue whatsoever. Um, after 88, what was telling was that George Bush was running for president. And he uh, vowed to be the environmental president and famously said that those who are worried about the uh, greenhouse effect haven't heard of the White House effect. And he promised to convene a, a presidential level uh, conference on, on, on global warming. Well, somehow, sometime between when he was running in, for office and when he got into office, the lobbyist effect came into play. And uh, that White House conference did happen, but it wasn't allowed to mention global warming. So it was the equivalent of having a conference on pandemics today without being able to mention COVID. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Most of the renewable energy strategies used that we're using today, whether it's solar, wind power, tidal power, were discussed back in the 19th century. Uh, in the early 20th century, in that era of, the, at the end of the Victorian era, when there was this tremendous, you know, uh, technological hubris.
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. You mentioned that the Reagan era was the lost years for climate change. Is that the main reason why it doesn't become a mainstream issue until 1988? Or are there other factors at play? Uh, no, I think that is the main reason. Um, there was no, there were, there were people interested, and certainly there was enormous scientific progress during the 80s, even as it wasn't a mainstream issue. But keep in mind that at that point, climate, um, because of particulates emitted in the, you know, an economic expansion, actually cooled a bit from the 50s to 70s. And then in the 80s, the warming began. 88, uh, there was also, a, a tr I think the 88 was an El Nino year, actually. And all of a sudden, people began noticing that, you know, the temperature record uh, falling all around the country. It could, it could no longer be ignored. Reagan is out of office. Uh, Phil Clapp, who is a well-known environmentalist who died some years ago, said that um, Reagan set back progress on solar uh, by 10 years. Um, this is all through uh, abandoning tax credits and things like that, um, and, and basically backburnering the issue. Let's go back a little bit to the 70s again. If you recall uh, um, the Arab oil embargo after the Yom Kippur War forced the issue of our dependence on Middle East oil to the attention of the United States um, and other countries as well. And so in the U.S., Carter started a, a big push on solar, and not for climate change reasons at that point, but basically for energy, energy independence, reasons of trying to become independent with energy. And tremendous progress was made, drove it down substantially. 
Um, that progress basically halted, as 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 Clapp mentioned in in uh, in the 80s, and then restarted in the early 90s. The lesson of this was that, you know, unless there's uh, consistency in the pushing of the development of renewables, uh, they aren't going to develop on a timeline as fast as they might. This leads to an important point. The battle for climate change was lost in the early 90s. Um, If the decades of the 80s was lost because the signal couldn't really be detached from the noise and because of uh, uh, Ronald Reagan just not being interested in the issue or his administration not being interested in the issue, In the 90s, the scientific knowledge about the dangers of climate change had advanced sufficiently that that we we should have been doing something about it back then. But the key factors that happened were that, one, the issue became politicized uh, as the fossil fuel lobby began to realize that uh, this was uh, likely a a threat to the fuel's preeminence. But secondly, the industrialization of emerging nations what was going to power them? This was the issue. If you recall in the early 90s, when China was just beginning its industrialization, the Federal Reserve uh, dates uh, it to 1988. So it was on its In 1990, China admitted uh, and from uh, fossil fuel emissions were a little less than half of the U.S. emissions, right? India, much less than that, uh, the two largest nations on the planet. People knew back then that if China industrialized with coal, it was going to have an impact on climate. They had the fourth largest coal reserves in the world. And so everybody was talking about leapfrogging technologies. I remember this. And at the same time, there was the beginning of the Kyoto process, the the process to come to some sort of an international agreement to contain greenhouse gas emissions. But China and India were resisting being held to the same restraints as the industrialized world. Because they were saying, why should you use coal? Why shouldn't we? And why should, and you're the ones who are caused the problem. We didn't cause the problem, so we should be exempt. In any case, all the developing nations were left out. The consequences of that we're living with today, because China and India be, did industrialize the coal. And, and China going from half our greenhouse gas emissions now is twice our greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, India is now the third largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. So think about that. Actually, the industrial nations have done a fairly decent job, although their emissions are still very high, of stabilizing them since 1990. China's emissions now amount to more than all the developed nations together. And so, um, you know, even though the Kyoto process, which came in, was voluntary, you know, the European nations actually tried to hold to their commitments. They did so in part through accounting trickery. Um, For instance, the uh, modernization of of East Germany once they were reunified was a tremendous benefit for uh, for, uh, Germany in meeting its its goals. But in in the meantime, emissions rose. The the whole Kyoto process was supposed to hold emissions to like 1990 levels. They're now 60% higher than that. So let's go back to the 90s again. Why didn't China try to power its uh, modernization, industrialization through uh, renewables rather than coal? Well, one, they did have those huge reserves. The second reason is that the uh, the U.S. was giving them mixed messages. At the same time, we were saying in meetings with them, you've got to try uh, renewables. We were pushing coal. 
and still using coal to power our, a lot of our electrical generation. And then there was an argument that has been offered today, which was that renewables just weren't ready to uh, supply the, uh, to step in um, at a cost-effective basis. To a degree, that is true. Uh, but in the book, I use the analogy of a football coach who shoots his star player in the, in the leg and then benches him because he's not able to play. The, the reason renewables weren't ready was that we had a start and stop relationship with promoting renewables. Most of the renewable energy uh, strategies used that we're using today, whether it's solar, wind power, tidal power, were discussed back in the 19th century uh, and the early 20th century in that era of, at the end of the Victorian era, when there was this tremendous technological hubris, steam-powered cars, electric cars were all invented, uh, solar power being used for agriculture in Egypt, um, wind power. And Thomas Edison um, wanted to harvest the uh, energy of the Gulf Coast, uh, the Gulf Stream, which moves within 15 miles of the uh, Atlantic coast at some points. And he wanted to put impellers on the bottom of the Gulf Stream and generate electricity that way. So all these ideas, it was a, a veritable renaissance. And then what happened? Well, something better came along. The something better was oil, discovered in 1859, you know, Western Pennsylvania. Then there were huge discoveries in Iran, 1908, and then, of course, in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, it's a fabulous fuel. It's energy-packed. It's highly transportable. It can be turned into all, it can power all sorts of different technologies um, and be turned into all sorts of kinds of lubricants and everything else. So it's this wonderful stuff with this a couple of uh, drawbacks, which, you know, are we're not being accounted for. One was um, loading the atmosphere with uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Another was pollutants, which of course, but that's, you know. So in any case, um, all these things, these renewables went into a coma uh, once oil became the dominant and, uh, and fossil fuels became the dominant fuels. And then we had another opportunity in the early 90s. And this is in uh, the United States more than Europe, I think. But Power plants generally have a life of about 30 years. So a whole generation of power plants was reaching the end of their lives that were powered by coal in the, uh, in the U.S. In the, in the early 90s. What would power the next? And so the, everybody saw this. Well, let's, let's move to renewables. Well, at that point, natural gas was very cheap, and the uh, turbines were getting that much more efficient for making power through natural gas. So essentially a new generation of power generation was installed with another 30-year life, postponing the dates for a, a lot of transition to renewables down the road, another generation. So in the 90s, all these things were happening. One, the issue became politicized. And when an issue becomes politicized, um, it's the message doesn't matter. The facts don't matter. If the messenger is deemed as illegitimate, then nothing gets through. And of course, we saw that today with COVID denial. You know, even as people are dying of disease, denying that it exists because it, COVID became politicized. So it's an object list in, in, in the power of how the uh, atmospherics around a message may be more important than the message itself. Can you delve into then the response from the fossil fuel lobby? How did they try and shape the conversation about climate change? Well, uh, yes. And it's fascinating because um, the playbook for how to um, stall action on climate change was actually uh, perfected with another crisis, and that was the ozone hole. Um, if you'll remember back in the 70s, uh, some MIT scientists discovered that these chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons 
would destroy the ozone layer, uh, destroy ozone in the upper atmosphere. And that ozone layer is actually essential to life on Earth because without it, as one scientist uh, named Paul Newman, oddly enough, uh, at NASA said, the sun would sterilize the Earth. And so it, they discovered this in the mid-70s. They actually won the Nobel Prize for that discovery. And the Carter administration moved towards banning the use of these chemicals in, uh, in uh, refrigerants and in other, and in other uses. And um, the industry, which was small but dominated by DuPont, recognized that this is a threat and was uh, starting, and DuPont started research on replacing uh, these uh, chlorofluorocarbons with uh, non-ozone layer-destroying chemicals. Then Reagan gets elected, and all of a sudden the industry realized, well, maybe they won't impose this ban on these refrigerants. And all of a sudden they form a, uh, I think it was called the Council for uh, Responsible Chloroform CFC Policy. And it was all the, the major industry players. And oddly enough, a lot of the scientists who joined in this uh, industry uh, lobbying group were actually scientists who had opposed uh, banning tobacco earlier, <laughs> an entirely different issue. They devised this playbook, and the playbook was, you know, dispute the science, uh, attack the scientists' motives, say uh, there's no consensus, say it's unsettled, um, because actually if you can, uh, that we need more study of the problem, and then say it is going to cost jobs and say it is uh, going, that we have time, most importantly, that we have time. And that message muddled, a muddled message to the policymakers and to the politicians, it turned out to be extraordinarily effective. And then British scientist uh, discovers that they're actually, his readings of ozone over Antarctic were plummeting. And the ozone holes discovered, and this is uh, his, his research is in the early 80s. Again, the lobbyists continued to say, well, um, the, the market's stable. It's not growing. There's not going to be a lot of these chemicals um, uh, for, for a while. And uh, they managed to stall action again. But then NASA then confirmed that the ozone hole existed. And, you know, that was the smoking gun. Um, and the world rapidly moved towards banning these chemicals, right, in 1987. It turned out that the major maker of the chemicals, um, as I said, DuPont, also was had the lead in the alternative. So it was actually in its eco economic interest to see that ban in place once they knew it was in, uh, inevitable. And when they, shift sides, uh, when they shifted sides and supported it, um, all of a sudden it happened. But what the playbook um, was the, optimized over those years, so right as that, uh, the, that treaty came into force banning the ozone chemicals, so did the issue of climate change come to the fore. But the issue of climate change was vastly more complicated than uh, the ozone uh, whole issue because it's not one class of chemicals. It is almost everything we do that contributes to greenhouse gas, from agriculture to making concrete to transportation, electrical power generation, buildings, everything. So once again, they formed an, uh, a lobbying group, business, the Chamber of Commerce, all these different players, and used that same playbook. But the dominant message back then, science is unsettled, we have time. And this wasn't helped by the economists. Uh, William Nordhaus of, of Yale did a number of studies on trying to estimate uh, what the effects of climate 
change would be on the economy down the road. And the uh, he was uh, based on IPP, IPCC and the original, the very first IPCC study. Um, and keep in mind, the IPCC was this giant consortium of scientists and policymakers that was formed to try and collect and, uh, and organize the state-of-the-art science at any given point on climate change. One of the uh, points in the earliest study, the 1990, the first uh, assessment, was that um, the oceans would delay the signal for many, many, many years, decades of climate warming. So we've talked about the challenges and the missed opportunities, but are there any success stories in the history of combating climate change? One of the great success stories of the past, uh, of the climate change era, has been energy efficiency. Amory Lovins, I think, uh, uses some extraordinary number that is reduced emissions by something like 20 times the adoptions of renewables so far. And the reason it's such a success is that everybody loves it. A more efficient for businesses, energy efficiency is profits, right? For homes, it's less expenditures. So there's no opposition to energy efficiency. And that has spurred innovation. In other words, when smartphones came along, you needed a more efficient battery. And, uh, and so a lot of battery technology was uh, driven by the uh, proliferation of smartphones and that is extended in, you know, to EVs, electronic vehicles, uh, and electric vehicles. And so um, one of the reasons uh, that electric vehicle battery progress has been made and will continue to be made is because of, um, because, just because of the, the proliferation of smart, smartphones a generation earlier. And so you see these things happening that nobody would have expected. That was Eugene Linden. His latest book is Fire and Flood, which is available now from Alan Lane. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.